Hello and a very warm welcome to you to today's edition of New Life. Coming to you live from the heart of Nairobi, this is Adventist World Radio, the voice of hope. We have a great show lined up for you. I am your host, Monica Kamukwa. It's a joy to have you tuned in. Starting off the show for us today is Emmanuel Sunday, who will be telling us more about disciplining children in the health segment. Then later on, Ian Muse will be joining us in the Bible segment to tell us more on obtaining forgiveness. But that is after we get the song to Nawasalimu by Kibera Youth Choir. Stay tuned. <laughs> Welcome back, dear listener. That was Tunawasalimu by Kibera Youth Choir. You're listening to the new live program coming to you live from the heart of Nairobi. This is Adventist World Radio, the voice of hope. Emmanuel Sande now joins us with more on disciplining children in the health segment. Stay tuned and be on the loop. Hello and welcome to our health slots. In our program today, we are going to talk about disciplining children. For many parents, discipline is a bad word. It's often associated with punishment, and nobody likes punishment. But discipline is much broader than punishment. Discipline is the whole process of training, teaching, and giving direction to the lives of children. Before thinking about punishment, parents should agree on what can be reasonably expected from the child. Child training requires parents to respect the individuality of the child. 
Even small children have a right to their own preferences. To be independent as adults, they must learn independence as children. But independence requires some guidelines. What should happen when the child violates one of these guidelines? The best type of punishment is closely related to the misbehavior. It may consist of depriving the child of some enjoyment or pleasure. Then arrange the penalty as soon as possible after the infraction. That means either parents should be able to give the punishment. If all punishing is given to the father, he may become the family executioner in the mind of the child. It puts the father in a difficult position, especially if he only hears about the incident secondhand. Once both parents have agreed on what requires punishment, they must be consistent. If they are not, the child will constantly test the limits, hoping to get by without obeying. The easiest way to keep children out of trouble is to keep them active in useful projects, involve them in household jobs, and include them in recreational plans. Contrary to popular opinion, it's not impossible for a parent and child to work together on a hobby or social event. Participating with them increases trust and confidence on both sides of the relationship. It's often difficult to find time to spend with children, but the benefits far outweigh the difficulties. The whole discipline process will be much easier if parents simply take the time to be with their children and listen to them. Relating to authority has always been a difficult problem, especially to children. Too much respect may result in blind submission to the desires of other people. Too little respect may threaten the survival of a society. How can a child be taught to keep both extremes in perspective? A child's attitude toward authority begins with his attitude toward his parents. How can parents relate to children in ways that will help them relate intelligently to other forms of authority in society? Two things are helpful. The first is firmness. Being firm is different from being harsh and dictatorial. Firmness means putting some protective boundaries around a child's freedom. When that small hand reaches for the stove, a firm parent says no. Children don't always know what harms them or what is good for them. It's natural for children to complain when parents keep them from doing something they want to do. They're often testing parents to see if they care enough to restrict them. Even teenagers respect parents for having firm opinions as long as they are reasonable. When parents don't set boundaries in which children have too much freedom to operate, children feel less secure and frequently conclude that parents don't care. Consistency is also important in teaching children how to relate to authority. Strictness one time and leniency the next only serves to confuse a child. When parents are consistent, a child has the security of knowing where he stands. Children are willing to excuse parents for occasional mistakes as long as parents are willing to admit them. Children are sensitive to injustice and they'll spot it quickly when parents don't admit obvious mistakes. Parents must be consistent in how they relate to children and how they relate to other authority. It's not consistent for a parent to demand complete compliance from a child while constantly quarreling with a local laws or religious requirements. To be both firm and consistent doesn't prevent a child from growing up independently and free. The security created by boundaries of safety and love gives them a base from which to intelligently relate to other authority. Dear listener, thank you for tuning in and may the Lord bless you abundantly. Are you just joining us? This is the new live program with me, Monica Kamokwa, coming to you live from Adventist World Radio, the voice of hope. You haven't missed a lot as we still have more coming up. 
and your feedback is always welcome and you can drop your comments, suggestions or questions through the producer Adventist World Radio PO Box 42276 code 00100 you are listening to the new live program coming to you live from the heart of Nairobi. This is Adventist World Radio, the voice of hope. Don't change the channel. <laughs> Na 
My dear listener, thanks for choosing our station. We are because you are. Right about now, Ian Muse joins us for the Bible segment with more on obtaining forgiveness. Be blessed. Greetings, dear listener, and welcome to our study today. The topic of our study is obtaining forgiveness. I am your presenter, Ian Musa. The first step to forgiveness of sin is repentance. But what is repentance? It literally means to feel a godly sorrow for the wrongs we have committed. Such genuine sorrow is only possible when we fully recognize that our only hope rests in the death of Jesus on the cross in our place. Helplessly, we must turn away from self and behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. What happens as we watch him bleeding, suffering, and dying on the cross? We realize that he was holy and innocent. You are the guilty ones. We should be hanging there instead of him. We are overwhelmed to realize that he would have submitted to the torture and death for only one soul, even for you or me. Suddenly our eyes fill with tears as we realize that our sins caused his death on the cross. His heart was broken by the crushing weight of sins that had been taken from us. He was voluntarily suffering the punishment we deserved. We are filled with sorrow that we ever committed those very sins that now are taking the life of the Son of God. That sorrow is repentance. We must clearly distinguish between a worldly sorrow and a genuine godly sorrow. Sometimes children say, I'm sorry, when facing punishment for misbehavior. But often they are merely regretful that they got caught. This is not true repentance. When I was in high school, one of my teachers was the sports coach. He was a nice enough fellow, but not a very effective communicator. Therefore, it was a treat when a young lady teacher took his place in the middle of the school year. All of us boys were especially delighted because this new teacher was very pretty and not much older than some of us. The second condition of forgiveness is called confession. John wrote, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 That certainly sounds simple enough, yet it is on this point that most people stumble and lose their way. The question most commonly asked is this, How do I know I have been forgiven? There is only one correct answer to that question. We know we are forgiven because God said we would be. Here is where the beautiful element of faith comes into the picture. We have every reason to know that God's word cannot ever fail. Whatever it says will take place. There is built-in self-fulfilling power in every promise of the Bible. Could the man lame from birth stand upon his feet? No, it was impossible. He was carried every day to beg outside the temple in Jerusalem. Yet Peter commanded, In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Acts chapter 3 verse 6. Suppose the man had remained on his pallet and said to Peter, I can't even stand on my feet, much less walk or run. I've been crippled all my life and have no strength in my feet to move off this bed. Do you think he would have been healed? No. He had to accept as a fact that Jesus of Nazareth had strengthened those ankle bones so that he could get up and walk. 
When he made the effort as though his feet were normal, they were restored to normal. According to your faith, so be it unto you. You may not feel forgiven when you ask for it, but the promise is that you are forgiven. So forget about feeling. Believe that it's done because God said it will be. Thank him for it and then act like it's done because it is. Your faith makes it a fact. Someone might say, well, I thought Christians got happy feelings as a result of accepting Jesus. Let me assure you that feeling will follow as a result of your faith and forgiveness. But always remember that faith must come before feeling. Paul had it right when he wrote, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5 verse 1 Just imagine for a moment that feeling came before faith in forgiveness. In that case, you will be a peaceful, joyful unbeliever and there is no such creature as that. By the way, what is the real secret behind the confession process? Why do we need to tell God about our mistakes and sins? Doesn't he already know without my recounting them to him? Of course. It is true that we do not inform God about anything he doesn't know already. Our confession does not change him either. It changes us. Ask anyone who has been courageous enough to ask forgiveness. You can probably remember having to make something right with an individual in the past. Perhaps you had repented some exaggerated rumor about the person and he found out that you were responsible. Even though it was hard, you gathered up your courage and stammered out your apology. What happened immediately? You felt as though a great weight had rolled off your shoulders. Tremendous relief flooded your soul. Yet, you told that person nothing that he did not know before. He was already fully aware of your words that brought him so much pain. You needed that confession more than he did. The third condition to having our sins forgiven is restitution. This long word simply means that we make every effort to correct the things we have done wrong. Of course, we recognize that it is never possible to reach into their past and rectify every wrong, every lie, and every dishonest act. In the first place, we can't even remember all the times we were guilty of those things. It will probably drive a person insane to feel the responsibility for such an impossible demand. Nevertheless, the Spirit probes our consciences and reminds us of the matters that can be made right. If something has been stolen, it certainly should be restored. If lies have been told which damage someone's reputation, we can apologize and tell the truth in order to remove any stigma on that person's character. Sometimes prison might be a possible consequence if crimes of theft or robbery have been committed but it is very important to arrange repayment whenever the possibility exists. In cases where restitution is not possible, the repentant one can safely trust the cleansing merits of Christ's blood to provide pardon and restoration. Is it difficult to confront and correct our past sins? Indeed, it is probably the most excruciating part of the redemptive process. This may explain why so many have convinced themselves that it is not a biblical requirement. But might it not also provide a partial explanation as to why spiritual renewal has been so elusive in the modern church? Many believe that a tremendous revival will sweep the Christian churches if every member made genuine restitution to those they have wronged. Meeting the three conditions of repentance, confession, and restitution brings assurance that the longest steps has been taken in becoming a true Christian. Their sins are now forgiven and can no longer crush the conscience with guilt.
Here is where I encountered the real answer to the question about the transfer of sin onto the divine substitute. When we reach out in faith, believing that he truly has taken our place on the cross, a very marvelous transaction is consummated. The death penalty that rested upon us is instantly removed from us and placed on Jesus. It is exactly as though we were with him on the cross, suffering the required sentence, and yet we were only there by faith. He experienced the pain and punishment for us, but because we confess him as our Savior, actually treats us as though we ourselves had died and paid the penalty for our own guilty acts. Friends, forgiveness is only found in Jesus Christ, and it is available to whoever that believes and confesses that Jesus is Lord. Our probation is still open, and Christ is still interceding for you and me. Therefore, let us approach this throne of grace boldly. Amen. I was your presenter, Ian Muse, and do have a good time. Thank you for staying tuned throughout the show. It is always a pleasure to have you. Remember to send us your views, comments, or questions about the show through the producer, Adventist World Radio, P.O. Box 42276, code 00100, Nairobi, Kenya. And that brings us to the end of the show today. Until next time. When we meet again, right here, I have been your host, Monica Kamokwa. God bless you abundantly. Another 